We'll pick up where we left off uh, just before Christmas. That is uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Uh, we'll pick up at verse 19. We will review a few of the preceding verses, but uh, I'll read verses 19 to the end of the chapter for our focus this morning. Verse 19. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does, not do, who, does, who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death, a woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out. Many schemes. Uh, By way of reminder, uh, the theme of Ecclesiastes is that uh, a naturalistic, man-centered worldview is described as life under the sun. We see that phrase repeatedly throughout Ecclesiastes, life under the sun. And that is when man's finite mind um, and his experience attempt to determine reality. And it leads to one logical conclusion, and that is vanity of vanities, all is vanity, says the preacher. What does man gain from all his toil at which he toils under the sun? That, of course, is chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes, verses 2 and 3. So here, uh, the preacher, who uh, we believe to be Solomon, traces the vanity of history, the vanity of philosophy, pleasure, Uh, in a host of other experiences in life uh, when considered from an under-the-sun perspective. That is, an anthropomorphic view, a man-centered view um, of life. That's under the sun. And then the only solution, of course, to this vanity um, is an emptiness of man's soul, is uh, true faith in the one and only living God who dwells above the sun. The sovereign one. He's sovereign creator of all things, and he governs all things um, by way of his providence, the providential dealings um, of life, circumstantial things in life, um, as he carries them out day by day according to his sovereign decreed will. We've seen something of that in our study thus far. So a a God-centered worldview then um, helps answer the questions um, of life the problems of history, philosophy, um, lacking wisdom within man and and all of these things, even the injustices of life. Um, God has a greater, bigger plan that 
um, the, the mysteries of which he does not always reveal to us. But nevertheless, when we understand life above the sun and we understand life from a theocentric worldview, um, we, 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 can, we can rest that the sovereign Lord um, is in absolute control and all things will bring glory to him in the end. Now, uh, back in verses 13 and 14, um, we see that wisdom um, not only considers God, but also considers the work of God. Notice verse 13, just back up a bit. Consider the work of God. Question, who can make straight what he has made crooked? Okay, meaning, consider this, ponder this, reflect on this, meditate on this, and accept this reality. And that is the idea of understanding or accepting um, this fact. Who can possibly make straight? that which God has made crooked. And as noted in verse 13, uh, we, we recognized last time that this is not a view of fatalism. Um, this is a view of, of Calvinism. And we talk about Calvinism. We're not talking about following a man. What we're talking about is having a grand view of Almighty God, who is indeed sovereign. And if he is predetermined to make something, quote-unquote, crooked, we have no ability to straighten it out. That's his point. God is the sovereign ruler, and he reigns over his creation. He ordains the affairs of the world. His providence ensures um, that those things happen. So, in other words, there may be things that are crooked that we want to fix, but we have no ability to fix. We cannot. We, we, we cannot raise the dead, for instance. We cannot delete the suffering in the world. So if God has ordained that a thing appears to be crooked, we, we, we can't fix it. Verse 15, he goes on, he says, In my vain life I've seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. Now here's something that's crooked. A righteous man dies young. And there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. So the, the preacher says, what is this? I've observed this. The righteous die in a young age, and this wicked man goes on year after year in his wickedness. Then he said that there's, there's two extremes, two extreme responses to, to the anomaly. We looked at this last time, verses 16 and 17. And since we oftentimes cannot make sense of things in this apparent paradoxical world in which we live, uh, we might be tempted to um, respond in one of two ways. One is um, living a super-righteous life. Okay? And what we mean by that, living a super, don't be overly righteous, he says. That means that we think that we can try almost to manipulate God if we live over-righteously, acting out righteousness, thinking that uh, we, we won't fall prey to some of these perplexities in life. That's one response. Or the other is to say, what's the use? If the righteous die young and the wicked go on their wickedness, I'm going to live an antinomian life. I'm going to live in rebellion to the law of God. I'm going to live in rebellion to the word of God. Last time we also observed that the freedom from those two twin evils, 
legalism and antinomianism is to live life truly free and to live a truly free life is to live life in fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord. And the fear of God is to relate to God as God, not to try to relate to God as, as a man, as a mere man. It's to fear the Lord. So that is to cultivate in our minds, to cultivate within our emotions the fact that we walk and we exist before Almighty God. We live quorum Deo. We live before the face of God. That's freedom from one of those two extreme responses to the difficulties of life. This one who called everything into existence is the one with whom we have to do. We live before him, we'll stand before him. So to fear the Lord um, is to revere the Lord. It's to stand in awe of the Lord. And to know that every word that comes out of his mouth um, is, is eternal. And we know at the same time he could exterminate me in a moment. We fear the Lord. This, the writer says, is freedom from these two extremes. You know, oftentimes our, 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 our uh, problem is a figment of our own imagination. We'll begin to say, I say God is like this. You ever heard of that? I say, or to me, God is like this. Well, it's the God of Scripture with whom we have to do. So if we create God in our own image, we won't truly fear God because we'll think that he's under our thumb. We're going to see something of that in the sermon this morning. Not necessarily in the sermon, but it's an example of of not seeing God in proper context. When we see him like this, we will fear him. It's not trepidation, but again, it's awe and it's reverence. That's, That's where the writer's going. That's where... Koaleth, which is the Hebrew word for preacher, is going, because that's the summation of the whole book. It's the conclusion of the journey. Fear God and keep his commandments. I mean, that's, what, that's where we're going. That's, listen to Psalm 119. I'm sorry I don't have any PowerPoint. I totally slipped my mind for Sunday school today, so my bad. Psalm 119, verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is the meditation of... It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have, get this, I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. See, the wise know where to go. Those who are truly wise know where to go. It's not to yourself, right? The wise do not go to themselves. They, they do not um, 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 hold on to the rationale or the philosophies of fallen rebellious men because wisdom comes down to us, amen? Wisdom comes from outside of us. We do not have um, wisdom in and of ourselves, even people in the world who, who have wisdom in, in, in their realm of life um, are recipients of common grace. We have something greater in Christ. It's to fear God and to obey his commandments. That is his law. That is Torah. Torah simply means directions for living as God has intended. 
So this is where wisdom is found. And he says here that the the wise person has the strength of a well-governed city. Wisdom from above. So wisdom governs our thoughts. Amen? We have godly wisdom. Wisdom, that wisdom governs our thought. We think about things in a godly way. Even when our thinking gets off, because of godly wisdom and the Spirit of God, we're convicted. So we're confessing sin even in our own head. Or at least I am, pretty regularly. (laughs) Wisdom governs the will. The choices we make in life. Godly wisdom guides our will. He's changed our will. He's changed our want to, and he continues to change our want to in, in, in sanctifying grace. Wisdom governs our speech, knowing what to say, knowing what not to say, knowing when to say what we ought to say, when we ought to say it, when ought we not say it. Something like that. You get the point. Wisdom governs actions. Growing to know what to do and when to do it. So, basically, take hold of wisdom, godly wisdom, and wisdom takes hold of you. It guides you. So, godly, biblical wisdom is a guard for us. It is a guide to us. It's the rails upon which we glide, if you will, is led by the Spirit. It's also a a defense in verse 12. Wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. So such wisdom says, give yourself to the one true God in a world full of sin. And as we'll see, that's really the summation of verses 19 to 29 that we just read. Give yourself to God, the one true God, in a world full of sin and your life will be preserved. Verse 20, Surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Now, that verse confirms the preceding verse. Okay, verse 19, Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Verse 20, Surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. In other words, even a just man sins. Even a just man sins. And therefore, he needs wisdom that's from outside of himself. Godly wisdom. Proverbs 20, verse 9 says, Who can say, I have made my heart pure? I'm clean from my sin. Who can say that? Nobody. If you say that, you're a liar. And you are a fool. Romans 3.10 tells us there is none righteous, no, not even one. 1 John 1.8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. You ever meet people that actually say, I don't sin? Wow. Notice next, we have a practical example of verses 19 and 20. So, The strength of wisdom, number one, is to know that all men are sinners, okay? So if we have this wisdom and we know that all men are sinners, we'll know this. Verse 21, do not take to heart 
all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you have yourself cursed others. You yourself have slandered others. You yourself have gossiped behind others' best. You yourselves have spoken negative words about others when they're not around. In other words, once you understand your own sin, you can, it's, more easy, it's more easy to extend grace to others. There's the wisdom there. <clears throat> so it's dangerous when someone says something negative about you and you hear about it and you obsess over it for the rest of your life. <laughs> That's dangerous. I can't believe that person would say that about me. Now, we all know people that, words, pe- people that speak certain words to us can indeed inflict pain and cause scars that are much deeper than them beating you down in an alley. Okay? That aside, that's true. We, we know that words like growing up are being you know, verbally abused by a mother or a father or, you know, or a spouse. That can be incredibly painful. But that, we're not talking about that. Sometimes, probably most times here, we put way too much stock in what others say about us. So the preacher here uh, pr- provides great insight and wisdom, and he's saying, look, don't give a sweat. Don't give a sweat about what other, others may say about you knowing that you have said many negative things about others when they're not around. In your car, on the way home from church. So his point, imagine if they heard negative things that you have said about them. So we're guilty of verse 22 because we're guilty of verse 20. Right? Did you see that? See the connection? Not a right, there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. You know, there's a great line from Pascal. He said, if all men knew what each other said about one another, there wouldn't be four friends in all the earth. <laughs> or there wouldn't be four friends left in the world. And, and sometimes our criticisms about others reveal more about what's wrong with us than what's wrong about them a bunch of whiners, basically, including myself. You know, when I was preparing for the preaching ministry and I was getting my feet wet and I preached in front of a bunch of people, and this is when email was just starting to become the main course of communication, um, I received a lot of, like, accolades very quickly. So a friend of mine who was a seasoned preacher and pastor, he said, uh, yea, there, youngster, as you enter into the realm of public proclamation, that is preaching the word of God, you're going to acquire both supporters and critics, friends and enemies. So be careful not to believe your own press clippings. No sooner did he say that, I got this scathing email from somebody. So I've, I've held on to that. 
So here we see our finiteness, verses 23 and 24. He goes on, verse 23, All this I have tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? And obviously, beloved, human beings left to themselves cannot discover the wisdom of God. Do we know this? It takes conversion. And conversion is preceded by what? Beloved? It's the R word. Regeneration. Regeneration is the supernatural work of God the Holy Spirit to take our heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. The product thereof? Conversion. We don't go convert and then become regenerate. It is one camp of evangelicalism teaches, which is wrong. It's just not biblical. You don't go convert and then you're born again. You're born again, and as you're born again, you're converted. And then you begin to gain the wisdom that is from where? From above. Human beings left to themselves cannot discover the wisdom of God. Paul said that God makes foolish the wisdom of men. And the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of man. So God has ordained that human wisdom will not and cannot discover the things of the one true God. 1 Corinthians 2.14 The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is, here it is, not able. He cannot understand them because they're spiritually discerned. It's not that they will not, it's that they cannot. And God must intervene. So conversion is necessary. It involves a change of mind. It it involves a change of view, a a new recognition of God, a new recognition of self, a new recognition of sin, and a new recognition of Jesus Christ. Regeneration produces conversion, granting us, over time, greater wisdom that comes from above. So all divine wisdom comes from outside of us. The gospel itself comes from outside of us. There's nothing good in us. There's nothing good within us that can possibly be presented before God as good to become acceptable to God. It's grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. It's the gospel. Nothing to earn it. So whatever wisdom we do gain throughout this life comes to us as a gift from God. So the more we gain ought to cause us to realize how little we know. Amen? Kelvin called this learned ignorance. Learned ignorance. Knowing the limits of wisdom is part of wisdom. So the preacher says, verse 23... All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. Get this? Okay, this is who we believe to be Solomon, the wisest man in the world that's ever lived, other than our Lord Jesus Christ. 
That which has been as far off and deep, very deep, who can find it out? Now, he's not ready to give up his his search here. No. And going on in his search, he's very deliberate. Verse 25. I turn my heart to know. Notice. It's deep, it's heavy, it's beyond me, but notice, I turn my heart to know and search out and to seek wisdom in the schemes of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters, he who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. That is the unrepentant sin. Now, in his wisdom, and not giving up this search, saying, you know, it's deep, it's too deep, it's very deep, I stopped and I considered evil. I'm considering evil. And the first thing he points out is the great temptation of of this kind of wickedness. Now, we've already been warned about being too wicked in verse 17, and here he pictures wickedness as, as the woman who is a trap. Her heart is is centered on, that is the core of her being, is centered on and guided by the instincts of a hunter. Snares, nets, traps, chains, fetters. Hunter. And that's referring to sexual sin. This is what he's referring to. So, wisdom being deep, far from me, too deep, He doesn't give up his search, so he stops for a moment. He considers evil, and the evil he considers is the evil of sexual sin. And if sexual sin did not bring immediate pleasure, okay, God's word does not deny that fact. No one would fall into sexual sin if it didn't bring immediate pleasure. But God in his grace... And in, in, in his love warns us of its consequence. Notice, he says, it is more bitter than death. Think about death. Death brings regret. Death brings unutterable sadness. The loss of a loved one. The loss of a loved one. He says it's more bitter than that. He says those who run toward it, Basically, they think they're running towards freedom, but they're running into a snare. They're running into a trap. They're running into a net. And she, the seductress, is a fetter, takes you down to great depths. You're headed for destruction. Many things feel good at first. Sin is fun for the flesh. It feels good, but it's kind of like a black hole in space. It just sucks everything into it and destroys it. I don't know how black holes work, but something like that. <laughs> Even the pursuit of wealth. I mean, wealth is not a bet. Who doesn't want wealth? But the reason, there's a reason most of us don't have great wealth. We'd worship it. <laughs> not, not, not too many people can handle it well, but there are those who can. And God has, I mean, Solomon was incredibly wealthy. But even the pursuit of it can draw people away. It becomes an addiction, and it can destroy your life. But there's nothing wrong with it in and of itself. 
So he says wickedness, you know, it might seem to be, you might seem to be in control of it, but there's no escape. It's a snare. It's a net. So the the preacher, he's not pessimistic about the outcome. He says at the end of verse 26, he who pleases God escapes this woman. Okay, this is the woman who's the hunter. This is the, you read about her in Proverbs. And she waits, looks through her lattice. (laughs) And she draws him in. He who pleases God escapes her. The sinner, that is the unrepentant one, he's taken by her. And then verse uh, 27. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they've, thought, they've sought out many schemes. So is the, the preacher a male chauvinist? Is he a sexist? Solomon, it seems here, is simply telling of his own experience. Now, he's already said, if you look at verse 20, in case you're a lady and you have a problem with this, he's already said in verse 20, there's not a righteous man in all the earth. Okay? There's not a righteous man in all the earth who, who does good and never sins. So we've already seen there's no one who doesn't fall short. Everyone falls short. So his observation was it's hard to find a faithful person, be they man or woman. Now remember this. Solomon did not have the best best track record with women. So if he's speaking here, relatively speaking, in, in an autobiographical sense, then it would make sense. Listen to 1 Kings. 11. King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh. Listen to this. Moabite, Ammonite, Edenite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them. Neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after other gods. Solomon, listen to this, clung to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, His wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. Snares and nets. Fetters. So their hearts were a bitter trap. And it laid snares and nets for this man. And it led to his tragic downfall. So perhaps he's speaking autobiographically when he says, among men I found one faithful, but among women I found none faithful. 
Verse 27, Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things. Verse 28, Which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. Okay, now Sidney Gradana says this about this. Quote, He's tried to use wisdom to find the scheme or sum of things, but all he could discover was that human beings are all schemers. Man or woman. Male or female. Verse 28, one man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. Verse 29, see this alone I have found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Clearly referring to the creation story in Genesis. Everything God made was good. Everything. Man is made in Mago Dei. Man is made in the image of God. The only creatures made in God's image. Created to grow godly with godly wisdom and multiply the earth. And they fell for the scheme to be like God. To know good and evil. And they fell for the scheme. You will not surely die. Hath God truly said, you won't die? Are you an idiot? You believe that nonsense? You believe this, this God? It's the same lie, right? You won't surely die. When you eat it, you see, God is jealous, so when you eat it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like him. You'll discern good from evil, and he doesn't want you to be like him. It's a scheme. So man, having been schemed, has thus been scheming ever since the fall. That's great, Danis' point. That's a good point. So we can thank God it doesn't end with the creation and fall, amen? It doesn't end there. But the scripture goes on to teach redemption by grace. So we then are not trapped in the first Adam. Made upright, God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. We're not trapped in the first Adam because being in Christ, we're now in the the last Adam, the second Adam. So we're set free from the bondage of the first Adam. We're set free from the schemes and the deception of the first Adam. We're renewed and recreated in the last Adam. Christ, 1 Corinthians refers to him as the, the last Adam. Thus it is written, 1 Corinthians fifteen forty-five: the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Life-giving spirit. Romans 5, 17. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Christ Jesus. So we now have wisdom that is otherworldly. It's heavenly. It's wisdom that comes from above the sun, amen? It's not wisdom that's limited to under the sun, but it comes from above the sun, 
He, 1 Corinthians tells us, verse 30, chapter 1, He's the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our what? Wisdom. Whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. In in Ephesians chapter 6, we're given the whole armor of God. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to what? Stand, resist the devil, to stand. Shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. That is to stand on the facts of the gospel, to not lose your footing. Remember the gospel, stand on the gospel. Belt of truth, walk in the truth, walk in truthfulness. You have the, uh, the breastplate of righteousness. That's not the imputed righteousness, but as the product of imputed righteousness, we're able to walk righteously. So we have the helmet of salvation, right? The belt of truth, the shoes, we have the sword, we have the shield. And it's to guard your thinking, it's to guard your emotions. Um, Align everything that you think and feel against the measuring rod of Scripture. And in chapter 6, he says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand and resist the schemes of the devil. So, to conclude, being in Christ, as regards all this wisdom, we can be that faithful man. Being in Christ and the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, the finished work of Christ on the cross, resurrected Christ, the power of Christ, we can be that faithful woman. We can be sober-minded. We can be self-controlled. We can be reverent. And we do not have to be slanders. Talking behind another's back. Because we're no longer schemers, so we no longer have to scheme. Having been forgiven and cleansed of all our schemes through the finished work of Christ. Therefore, this wisdom it's no longer difficult to seek out because it comes from above us and it's gifted to us in Christ. Amen? So we can walk as wise men and wise women. Amen? Amen, we're done.